0: This edition of The Recap was first broadcast on the 28th of November 2015 on Monocle 24. Marcus Hippie and welcome to the recap bringing you the highlights from the past week's live news and analysis programs broadcast right here on Monaco 24. Over the next 30 minutes we'll bring you some of the very best interviews and reports from The Globalist, The Briefing, Midori House and The Monaco Daily. Coming up Turkey shoots down a Russian fighter jet on its border with Syria. We discuss what the consequences may be in the fight against the so-called Islamic State.
1: It seems to me an incident that has been in the making for some time. Twice in early October, uh, Russian jets violated Turkish airspace.
0: We will also hear from journalists at France 24 who were tasked with the unique responsibility of having to report the news to both an international audience and local viewers as they watched the horror unfold in their own city two weeks ago.
2: We all went back on air and tried to figure out what was happening. That was, that was a hell of a night.
0: We will shift our focus to Asia, too, where North Korean kimchi is about to get the UN intangible cultural heritage status. But what is the difference between South and North Korean kimchi?
3: I would say two major things are different. One is color, the other
0: one is ingredients. All that and much, much more coming up in the next half hour right here on The Recap with me, Markus Hippi. On Monday, it seemed that if the weekend's papers were to be believed and if David Cameron would get his way, Britain could be bombing IS targets in Syria within the next two weeks. The country's security services were privately warning that they are just about keeping a lid on things when it comes to shielding the UK from a terrorist attack. It was in that hawkish yet stretched atmosphere that the SDSR, the Strategic Defence and Security Review, was to be published here in London. The review, sets out the British government's defence and security plans. The previous one dealt cuts so deep the military are still reeling. So the question was, what was expected from this year's report? Monaco’s Emma Nelson discussed this with Robert Fox, defence editor from London's Evening Standard.
4: It was slash and burn. It was uh, austerity, new government, uh, the coalition in for six months, let's show it, take all these things. There was also a lot of kidney against the army, particularly because of Afghanistan and Iraq, which the government hasn't quite got rid of. Uh, they don't get on well, uh, the military and 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 uh, Cameron's team, uh, although they're, 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 they're smooth in public. One of the things that they took out was a thing called a maritime patrol aircraft, which does all kinds of things around the coasts of of the British Isles, fishery protection, as well as looking out for Russian submarines. Sadly, since they cancelled that, a hell of a lot of the Russian submarines have been getting in, and we've had to ask the French, the Canadians, and the Americans to, to help out. I remember talking to Liam Fox, no relation, who was the defence secretary at the time. He said, we don't need these things at all. He actually said to me, we don't need them. They are going to have to buy a very expensive and I think unnecessarily expensive American replacement, the, 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 the Poseidon P8 Uh, from Boeing at the cost of about £8 billion. And it was a mistake they could have probably remedied uh, the Nimrod for. They could have got cheaper solutions. They still can get cheaper solutions with a large British input. And I think that that's the thing that's so worrying about this Defence Review it's looking very very light particularly the serial leaking over the weekend to the chosen sunday press and the andrew Marr show on the bbc which now seems to be a government platform for policy um that they're making it up on the hoof
5: there was bits and bobs coming out left right and center yes, right. In, last week in the in the wake of the paris attacks it was um it was leaked uh, that special forces are likely to be the big winners this time round um An extra 2 billion, not extra manpower, but more resources because they're saying... Uh, Probably a
4: lot of that 2 billion will go on the wrong things because if they're allowed to take charge of their budget, they'll buy a fleet of brand new American Black Hawk helicopters. We haven't got the support from them. It'll be needlessly expensive. That's the trouble with this patchwork approach to defence. And we will hear a lot today from the Prime Minister launching this. He will come hot foot agog from a meeting with Monsieur Hollande, who's declared war on ISIS, uh, as we know... We'll hear far too much about immediate threats instead of long-term capability, long-term flexibility. We might have to go off somewhere really quite odd. For instance, somewhere in the Gulf, somewhere in North Africa on the Mediterranean coast. Have we got the full capability for that? Probably not, because they haven't paid enough attention, attention to personnel, which is going to, I think, going to be the real Achilles heel in this defense review.
0: That was Robert Fox, Defence Editor from London's Evening Standard, speaking to Monocle's Emma Nelson on Monday's edition of The Globalist. You are listening to The Recap on Monocle24. We are only a bit over two weeks after the horrific attacks in Paris, but it already feels as though much has changed. As Europeans come to grips with their new reality, many countries are considering their options as call for a global coalition to take on those responsible grow louder. All this week here on Monocle24 we were looking back at how the media responded to the attacks in Paris as news broke across the world on that Friday. Many turned to their local news broadcasters. For journalists at France 24, however, they were tasked with the unique responsibility of having to report the news to both an international audience and local viewers as they watched the horror unfold in their own city. Monaco's Paris correspondent Tom Burgess-Watson sat down with supervising producer at France Van Amanda Alexander, and Damien Coque, a presenter from the channel's French-language version. Damien, let me start with you. You were working on Friday night. Just tell me what it was like on Friday the 13th when you had to break
2: that news. I was supposed to be in the end of my shift at 10 o'clock. I was about to leave and go home and then suddenly we heard about, you know, first shooting somewhere in Paris. Somebody said, that's in the 10th. And then somebody else said, no, the shooting is not in this location, but in another one. And then we, we realized that there were several shootings at the same moment and we clearly thought about Charlie Hebdo and what happened in January and so we all went back on air and tried to figure out what was happening. That was, that was a hell of a night.
0: Amanda, th- as Damien was just saying there has been so confusing uh, with so much conflicting information. How as a senior producer do you decide what we're going to go with, what we're going to treat as being a reliable source?
6: Well, I think the the tricky thing was that, as Damien was saying, there were so many conflicting reports. We didn't know what was going on where. Luckily, we managed to send teams on the ground very quickly. And we were able to check the facts. And we were very careful on what we were reporting because there were many rumors going around. And we only went with what our correspondents were seeing on the ground and what they were saying, what the police were saying to them directly. And I think that's how we managed to cover it quite well.
0: Damien, was it quite nerve-wracking delivering that news on live television, given what was going on?
2: Well, it was especially for me because I had some friends at the Bataclan. I used to work for a rock radio station in Paris, and many of these guys often go to venues like that. And I had, in fact, three friends in the Bataclan, and everybody was trying to figure out what was going on. I had friends on Facebook saying, do you know... For instance Pierre is safe and we knew that the guy was there so it was kind of strange you know to have to talk about this news knowing that some of my friends were there they, they made it safe but that that, that was a, a strange situation and another thing here leaving this event at France 24 what was surprising is that everybody was rushing back to France 24. We, we could see every kind of people, you know, people from the morning shift, people who started their day at 3 o'clock here in the morning coming back, people of the weekend, of the week. I've never seen so many people and all these journalists at the same time here in the newsroom. That was quite impressive.
6: And I think also what was difficult for us was to not get our emotions to take over because we, I mean, I was stuck just a few meters away from one of the attacks. I was barricaded in a in a concert hall, not knowing, and then having to come into work and recovering from your personal situation and getting to, you know, make sure that all your friends are safe. That I think to me that was the most difficult thing was to just not let my emotions take over and just really get into work mode and be a journalist and report the facts and not what you're hearing and not that you were scared and just to try and forget about your friends, which of course is very difficult, but that's our jobs and that's what we have to do.
0: That was Amanda Alexandra and Damian Cocker talking to our Tom Burgess-Watson a little earlier. Up next, Turkey shoots down a Russian jet and the owner of Alibaba is interested in South China Morning Post. We will also get an answer on what differentiates kimchi in South and North Korea. Stay tuned.
7: Join Monocle24's international editors and correspondents as they touch down in a different city each week for our brilliant new travel programme. Come on board for a one-stop audio guide to the most dynamic, emerging cities around the world. As well as hospitality highlights and key cultural hotspots, we'll also visit new retail spaces, sample the local food scene and meet the design denizens that a potentially time-poor traveller can ill afford to miss. The Voyager, in association with Turkish Airlines, is now boarding.
0: You are listening to the recap, a look back at our coverage of the week gone by in live news shows hosted here at Monocle 24. I am Markus Hippi. We move now to what was one of the top stories of the week a Russian Air Force plane that was shot down by Turkey near Turkey's border with Syria on Tuesday. According to Turkish authorities, the jet veered into Turkish airspace and was warned a number of times. Russia has denied the claim and is now planning wide ranging economic sanctions against. Against Turkey as a retaliation. But when the news story broke on Tuesday, there were lots of questions in the air. What happens next and how might the Kremlin and Putin react? To discuss these, Monocle's editor Andrew Tuck was joined by Dr. Andrew Foxall, Director of Russian Studies at the Henry Jackson Society, and also Monocle's Steve Bloomfield on Tuesday's edition of The Briefing.
1: Much of what we know um, is coming from Turkey, but of course in part some of what we know is coming from Russia and there are understandably conflicting reports about that. I mean, if we we take what we know at the moment, it it seems like this is precisely a a kind of incident that many have feared would take place since Russia began its military intervention in Syria. And it's also, it seems to me, an incident that has been in the making for some time. Twice in early October, uh, Russian jets violated Turkish airspace, At that time, the the Turks did not follow their usual rules of engagement, which is to say that
8: they did not shoot these Russian jets down. So, in some sense, but there had been some negotiations in recent weeks, hadn't there, between the Turks and the Russians to try and iron out the, the difficulties. There had been a, a kind of an apology on the side mm-hmm. from Russia. It felt like they had something in place to kind of avoid this. The,
1: the, I mean, there, there had been so after those incidents in early October, a, a, a military, um, a a, a, military, uh, a group of uh, prominent Russian military advisers uh, went to Ankara to speak with Turkey about this, and as you suggest, they... They almost ironed out precisely what was and what was not going to happen in this sort of situation. But clearly that what each party understood from that was not what the other understood. I think in some respects, questions will undoubtedly be asked about the willingness of Turkey to open fire um, in such a way that they
8: did. Uh, Steve, just bring you in here on on the NATO question, you know, uh Turkey is a member of NATO. There is, in theory, some kind of you know, process by which all the other countries can be dragged quite easily into a, a process of war. How dangerous is this situation?
7: This situation is complicated, but not catastrophic. I think what's important to note is that both sides, Turkey and NATO on one side and Russia on the other, don't want this mm. to escalate. They, they don't want it to, to get out of hand. Uh, both sides, both on paper and in reality, are actually relatively united on on what needs to be happening inside Syria, at least in terms of uh, of taking the fight to ISIS. And neither side will want to be distracted too much by that. Um, NATO will be meeting later on this afternoon. Turkey's called for a meeting of NATO to discuss what happens. I think you're going to see a very careful statement from NATO uh, about the event saying it needs to be uh, fully uh, investigated and that you know there should be no rush to judgment. And it's interesting that actually the Russians so far, apart from some of the more excitable members of the Duma, have also been saying very similar things or we're
8: not entirely sure what happened. We need to wait to see what happens. Uh, just reading it between the lines, so the, the Russians have said may, they they felt that the plane had been brought down maybe from ground fire. Mm-hmm. You know, it seems that the Turks are admitting they they thought they'd shot the plane down. I want is that do you think some attempt to kind of again avoid blaming the Turks directly?
1: I think it is. I think the characterization of, of complex but not catastrophic, you know, is, is an accurate one and a good one at the moment. You know, Turkey as well, you know, Turkey is, of course, a member of NATO, but Turkey's relationship with NATO is not one that is not unproblematic. In recent years, um, it has supported NATO when it suited Ankara, but it's also pushed back against some NATO interests when they haven't been in Turkey's, um, in Turkey's interests. But you know the seriousness of the situation, which is to say that a NATO country has been in direct military conf- uh, conflict with Russia, is one that you know we really cannot um, you know cannot stress enough
8: now th- there are reporting that one of the pilots has, has, is, it does seem to be uh, dead on mm-hmm. landing and uh, maybe again from ground fire and the the other person is is said to be potentially alive so if this leads to some kind of hostage situation mm-hmm. that th- that could endanger things a little bit more. It, it
7: could certainly um, and then of course that brings into play all sorts of other actors like for example the the rebel group mm. that may or may not have taken uh, this pilot hostage and I think it just goes to underscore exactly how complicated the situation has become here one other thing that's perhaps worth pointing out is that there is obviously uh, in many western capitals at the moment a debate about renewed military action in Syria renewed uh, bombing uh, raids uh, and certainly the debate here in the UK UK, uh, one of the reasons for not getting more involved has been uh, this fear that with Russia being there in particular, you could have an incident like this. I don't think in the medium term it will have too much of an impact on that debate, but it will certainly, in the short term, it will certainly come up time and time again.
0: That was Dr. Andrew Foxall, Director of Russian Studies at the Henry Jackson Society and also Monocle's Steve Bloomfield with Monocle's editor Andrew Tuck on Tuesday's edition of The Briefing. You are listening to The Recap on Monocle 24. I am Marcus Hippie. Chinese billionaire Jack Ma already owns the huge company Alibaba, China's equivalent of Amazon. Earlier this week, talks were reported of either himself or his company acquiring the renowned South China Morning Post. Ma would be following in the footsteps of Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos, who bought The Washington Post in 2013. However, such moves don't come without controversy. Angus China correspondent for the Australian Financial Review and regular monocle contributor explained all this to Georgina Godwin on Wednesday's edition of The Globalist.
9: Well, there's news out today that um, they've been looking to sell it for the last 10 years. And as anyone in media knows, the, uh, the days of the sort of venerable newspaper and the highly profitable newspaper are probably gone. And so I think... Um, the talk out of Malaysia this morning is that they're looking to sell it. They feel the time has come and uh, obviously it's not as profitable as it once was. Um, But equally, I I think you cannot discount the fact that uh, in the environment uh, in which we live in China today, it's uh, far more difficult for anyone who controls a sort of independent media organisation or indeed has a uh, a dissenting voice uh, to the Communist Party. So I think on the one hand, while they're probably it is time for sell, to sell for them. I think equally it is a bit of a millstone around their neck and has probably in recent years caused them more problems than it has been worth.
5: Mm. So the uh, the buyer, and we'll get on to the problems it may cause for him, we don't yet know though if it's Jack Ma himself or his company Alibaba.
9: That's still uh, up for debate, yes. And uh, look, I, I guess that will emerge um, You know, as the sort of sale posts process goes through but you've got to say that the dogs are barking pretty loudly on this one and it looks uh, to be a pretty strong rumor that either ma or indeed uh, alibaba will buy this and uh, i guess from a you know a journalist perspective in china that's a pretty um, bad sign for you know independent news coverage of china here and uh, beijing has been gradually sort of strangling uh, independent media in and around greater china and um, that should this I would view this sale as just part of that process.
5: Really? So Ma would be guaranteed, do you think, to toe the party line on this?
9: Absolutely. I mean, this is the, the, the idea that uh, you know, Jack Ma runs a private company in China. You know That is, on the surface of things, very true, but he is intimately tied to the Communist Party here in China. He is highly reliant on the Communist Party for... Uh, licenses to operate his business, and he needs the favor of the Communist Party to maintain his position in China. So the big growth area for Alibaba in recent years has not been you know, selling, selling stuff on the internet so much. It's more about financial services, and that is a highly regulated uh, and uh, indeed an area controlled by the state here in China. And Jack Ma has been gradually encroaching on the state monopolies in financial services for the last two or three years now. And that has been all because the government wants to open up the sector, and so really he's doing it, uh, he's very much uh, operating at the, uh, at the sort of courtesy of the government, and it's very important for him to uh, keep on the side of the government if he wants them to allow him this space to encroach on the state monopolies.
5: Mm. But given that uh, financial services is the area in which they're expanding, why then buy the newspaper?
9: Well, this is the point, isn't it, really? And... Um, the, there's a sort of theory around um, the big internet companies in China are really sort of like, uh, have really taken on the role that, uh, you know, the traditional media once did uh, and the state media did in China. And so that they have a sort of policy which is called uh, support and surround the government. So in terms of supporting the government, uh, I would see that this move as uh, Jack Ma supporting the government by buying the South China Morning Post to take out one of those dissenting voices. Uh, It has had a sort of long history of really being a a local paper in China here. You don't get that with the state media because it's so controlled. So if you are looking for English language news on China, your first port of call is not the Financial Times or the New York Times. It is the South China Morning Post. And uh, that has caused a, a lot of problems uh, for Beijing because, unlike you know myself as a foreign correspondent, most of the journalists who work for the South China Post Morning Post are you know they're, they're locals. They've got lots of great connections. Uh, they went to school and university with these people. So, all the really big news broken on China, it's usually in English. It's usually done by uh, the South China Morning Post.
0: That was Angus Greek from the Australian Financial Review speaking to Monocle's Georgina Godwin on Wednesday's edition of The Globalist. You are listening to The Recap on Monaco 24 and it's now time for a highlight from Thursday's edition of Midori House. Rome is threatening drastic measures to tackle what might be thought of as a disease of legionnaires, specifically the battalions of centurion impersonators who pursue tourists around the Colosseum, demanding money with menaces for photographs. Ahead of the Catholic Holy Year beginning on December the 8th, Rome's City Hall has concluded that the fancy dress phalanxes threaten the respectability of the monuments. This is what Andrew Muller discussed with his guests Quentin Peel and Alessia Mas
10: to be honest, having, well, not being from Rome, and um, but having visited the place a number of times, I I, I I just don't see the point. I mean, with all the problems that Rome has, um, the centurions doesn't come on the top of my, you know, 100 <laughs> <laughs> issues to address, if I'm honest. It's quite um, difficult to be a pickpocket if you're wearing a centurion suit. <laughs> point, um, no, but at the same time, you know, you can't get on a tube and go from point A to point B in, in Rome, or indeed, it's like a bus or something, so, I mean, they don't come to mind as a serious problem indeed uh, to many tourists I always found that it's something sort of folkloristic it's sort of colourful of course it doesn't strike a a serious note to the importance and the archaeological value of of what you see in front of you but again I don't find it as distasteful or particularly problematic in this regard Um,
11: it it may be cynical of me Quentin but obviously Rome is expecting a huge influx of tourists for this jubilee year this holy year that begins on December 8th it has been noted that many of the centurion impersonators are poorer people from the less fashionable districts of Rome. Uh, is this a means of basically just... Clearing them out of the city centre.
10: Uh, I think your cynicism mm. may well be justified. Actually, yes, and that it's an idea of sort of clean up the act. I, d- I didn't know that there was going to be an enormous influx of tourists to Rome. I mean, Rome always has a hell of a Indeed. lot of tourists. Um, I'm, I'm a bit sad about the whole thing, really. I, mm. I like these sort of actors on the streets and so on. And hey, you know, they they uh, you want a picture for five euros?
11: Fine. Um, Alessia, I was wondering. I mean, there, there is clearly a demand for them. Should should, should City Hall? think think about this another way and perhaps, you know, hire them? Um,
10: well, absolutely. I think there is an element of, you know, the culture of tourism is a very interesting one because even though Italy has this outstanding complement of, of treasures for, for, for the world to come and visit, um, and it has a very certain sort of culture of tourism, is not particularly the most appealing or the most sort of uh, uh, attractive when it comes to youth and when it comes to modernity. Think of places like the Imperial War Museum. Um, you know, you, you don't have anything like that um, in Italy um, and certainly not in the Eternal City. So perhaps here there's an opportunity to to, to seize in terms of rethinking how to make tourism and, and tourism about history in this case more attractive and appealing and the centurion telling you the story with his funny accent about the importance of romans and what they did might very well be a good option for that
11: uh, we should point out to our listeners just before we leave that alessio is of course somewhat biased he is he's presently wearing the centurion
0: outfit that he is rarely seen without on his visits to midori house quentin peel and Alessio batalano there in discussion with monocle's andrew muller you are listening to the recap on monocle 24 UNESCO's Intangible Cultural Heritage List is one of the world's more picturesque soft power battlefields, a register of curious practices which are held to say something about the country that begat them. One thinks, as one so often does, of Mongolian knucklebone shooting or Luxembourg's hopping procession of Echternacht. North Korea, though not known for its folksy charm, does appear on the list for the Arirang folk song. However, it is about to double its representation with the addition of kimchi the Korean cabbage condiment. South Korea's kimchi season was already listed, so are UNESCO just evening the score or is there something to be said specifically for democratic people's kimchi? This is what Emma Nelson and Andre Muller discussed with Kwan Huk, head chef of London's Hurwendeki restaurant.
5: Kwan, you have brought us bowls of kimchi. Yes. Yes. Uh, the geographical origin of the kimchi you will explain, but in a moment. But um, obviously, North can Korean you pass kimchi. Pass me the bowl, while no, you're asking you the can question. No, you really <laughs> um, wait. It Smells <laughs> you, amazing. Stop. What's the difference between North and South Korean kimchi? I
3: would say two major things are different. One is color. The other one is ingredients.
5: Okay. Color first. Ingredient next.
3: Yeah, the color, because North Korean has more the white color than. South Korean kimchi.
5: For those of us who've never encountered kimchi did before, and I doubt very much anyone on Monocle Twenty Four has has not encountered a bit of
3: kimchi in their time. What is it? The kimchi is a probiotic food. Get fermented the cabbage,
5: which never sounds quite as delicious as no. it really is.
3: <laughs> now, when you taste it, it tastes really amazing because this is a uh, we put lots of uh, the ginger or garlic inside there because mixed with the really spicy and fish sauce, especially the sound. But yeah, it sounds are very strange, but taste is amazing. Yes.
11: The, the, the UNESCO listing for South Korean kimchi lists not just the food, but kimjang, the, the season in which kimchi for is the winter, made. Yes.
3: Yeah. H- how big a thing is that in Korea? Um, we eat kimchi every single meals together. The kimchi is very important for in Korea, but well, south, south and North as well. But when you prepare kimchi for winter, we prepare for three or four months or or five months between the wink turn,
11: how 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 much cupboard space um, does a four month supply of kimchi
3: consume? Okay, for example, my family of four members, we prepare hundred cabbages.
5: And how long will a hundred? How long will it take you to get through a hundred cabbages?
3: Uh, it depends on when you are eating kimchi every day <laughs> right. or making out of I will say, say four months. Okay. Four months or five. morning,
5: noon, and, and when is kimchi eaten? This is breakfast. This is breakfast kimchi. Every like, time. Every time. Every time. You every you every single bored. time. I think, Andrew, maybe the chance that you can dive into your kimchi.
11: Yes. Okay, you have to pass me the bowl. Okay, fine. Thank you. uh, Thank you very much.
5: Coyne, explain to us what what we're eating here. It's no no use. Andrew can just carry on and eat it while you and I talk about what you brought in.
11: That was my plan.
3: (laughs) I brought some uh, cabbage kimchi. Mm. Uh, We have more than 100 different types of kimchi. Mm -hmm. But this is which I brought is a cabbage. And I brought some little rice and roast seaweed.
5: That's lovely, thank you. When you
3: wrap with the seaweed
0: and the kimchi together, it's perfect. It's amazing, okay. Perfect Fun. combination. Fun. Fun. Am I allowed Fun. some of this? Mm. Hang
5: on, I've lost my chopsticks under my script.
0: Kwan Hook, head chef of London's Hulrundeki restaurant, they're speaking with Monaco's Andrew Muller and Emma Nelson on Wednesday's edition of the Monaco Daily. And that's all we've got time for on this week's episode of The Recap. The show was edited by Toby Hammond. Join us again next week to hear some of the very best of our live news programs here on Monocle 24. But for now, from me, Marcus Hippi, thank you for listening and goodbye.